I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Better Than Life, the episode-by-episode breakdown of Red Dwarf. I'm Fergus, co-host and, as per Space Corps Directive 271, huge fan of the show. I'm John, and I'm on my first rewatch in decades. We're joined by our producer, Alex. This time we're looking at Series 2, Episode 3, Thanks for the Memories, with Gemma Arrowsmith. It's theme tune time. It's a show about a man who's lost three million years in space. His company and evolved John, I'm so excited to talk about this episode. Our guest, she's written and performed in, I'd guess, most of your favourite TV shows from the last 10 years, including that awesome recent episode, A Christmas of Doctor Who. But most importantly, she's a fan of Red Dwarf. It's Gemma Arrowsmith. Oh my Yay! God. Hello, Gemma. Thank you for having me. <laughs> I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for, for coming and chatting. Red Dwarf, let's get into it. Do you remember how you got into What was your first experience? What was the moment you went, hang on, what's this? 100% I remember it. It would have been late 1991. I, and this is going to beautifully date this as though I'd written it. <laughs> I was in a video rental shop with my <laughs> mother. And a few months earlier, I had spotted uh, a Faulty Towers VHS and and my mum said, that is a fantastic show. It's so funny. You should watch that. And I decided from that moment that I was into comedy. I was not into those silly childish cartoons anymore. I was a grown-up. I was a grown-up 10-year-old and I, I was into comedy. And a few months later, I saw the... It was, it was series three, bite one VHS of Red Dwarf. So that's backwards, marooned and polymorph. Classic. That VHS... <laughs> Like it absolutely turned my world around. It was it was <laughs> over the next few months I got all of the VHSs that were available. Up to that point, series one was not out yet. They Rob Grant and Doug Naylor oh, wow. tried to cover it up. They they said don't repeat it. It's one of the reasons they say that they got series two was going, Don't repeat series one because we're going to really up the budget on, on Series 2 and then obviously hugely up the budget on Series 3. So don't don't bring it out on VHS. So I still think of, even though now we're in the era of DVDs and Blu-rays and streaming, I still think of Series 1 as this slightly rarer, illicit thing that you can that you have to seek out, even though it's just you know <laughs> the same click of a few buttons away. Because I remember Series 1 coming out on VHS and me getting to see the end for the first time wow. and see how the story had started, which I'd never seen. It's such a cool origin, isn't it? It's an amazing, it's an amazing origin story. Um, so, but I in those months I soaked up every single bit of Red Dwarf and then the first series I saw go out live would have been beginning of 1992, series five. Three and five, I don't know whether this, I just literally thought about this today. Three and five are still my favourite series and I wonder whether it's because three was the first one I ever saw and five was the first one I ever saw go out live. I wonder whether that is, <laughs> that is or whether it is just because they're the best. I don't know. I think a lot of fans would say they are the, the zenith. They are... I think you're right. The, the, the standard. It's strong stuff, isn't it? Yeah. So, Gemma, you saw series two pretty quick after 
yeah, uh, I got getting bite one of series yeah. three. So f- for you, I guess that sort of tonal shift was wouldn't have been a big deal at the time. It just would have been that's the show, right? Yes, I never even really thought about it. I mean, now I can I look at as somebody particularly who works in television. I can look at it and I go, oh, they just hugely had their budget upped and they were like right let's let's get rid of all of this gray like obviously because i know all the stories about the the gray that they wanted it to look like a submarine which i get i think that's you know it's a it's a a mining ship traditionally metal though not not wood yeah true not Hmm. wood not painted wood but then when you light it like a studio sitcom with big lights all from the front you can't make it moody and interesting like a submarine would be and so it does look Hmm. very sort of washed out yeah. but I think you can see the difference in budget between one and two actually uh, e- even though it's the the same sets I think you c- can see and I was watching the documentary before this and how they were like right we can't get rid of the grey but let's put so much more colour in the costumes and lighting and I think that really shows between one and two also in the in the kind of personalisation the character personalisation of the sets the bunk room is is covered in stuff now we asked the the question a couple of episodes ago about how much time has passed between series one and two because it could be years they could have really made the place reluctantly their home Mm. still not moved into the officers quarters it took them a while to then in series three move into the officers quarters yeah. i think there's, doesn't Crichton throw away a line about the officers quarters being i i, I can't believe that this my 15 year old self would would know this off by heart but that, that, <laughs> sure. that they've that they've been like it, it, like irradiated or something and so now yeah. they can move into the the officers quarters or something because of the that's the, right they're still contaminated at yeah. the point of series two and then everything's fine by series <laughs> again how much time has passed so three and five Four, not so much, or is one just coincidence? Four is the bridging one. I don't know. Again, I think it's just it's it's exactly like Faulty Towers. That my favourite episode is the Builders because that was the first one I ever saw, um, mm. and I do think that. I mean, my goodness, backwards, marooned, and polymorph. Incredible. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, they're amazing episodes. <laughs> they are amazing. It's so hard to choose a favourite episode out of all of Red Dwarf. But if I were pushed, I would either choose marooned, because I am a fan of, like, bottle episodes and just pushing yeah. two characters together. So, like, in other sitcoms, it's often bottle episodes that are my favourite. So in Porridge, it's a night in. In Steptoe, it's, like, the desperate hours, because it's a bottle mm-hmm. episode with just four characters, including Leonard mm-hmm. Roster. And so it's... Or it does tend to be these just very tight, small episodes where you don't leave the set. And marooned, I've got... I mean, they do leave the set, but... Well, kind of. I mean, they're, they're definitely imprisoned. They're imprisoned even more than they are in Red Dwarf, usually. Yeah. I mean, people <laughs> yeah, say right. about sitcoms, you put characters together, trap them together in a place. Characters who've got very different outlooks on life, you trap them together in a place. Never is that more literal than in Red Dwarf. They are literally trapped for <laughs> a mm. spaceship three million miles from Earth. It doesn't get more literal than that. What is it about the bottle episode that is so appealing? For me, it's... I'm an actor and a writer... And bottle episodes force actors and writers to the absolute top of their game. You haven't got mm-hmm. anything else. You don't have constant changes of set. You don't have, like, new location, new location, uh, costumes. Uh, you don't have anything other than great acting and great writing. That's all you've got. And sort of why I love series one and two as well, actually, because they haven't got an enormous budget. That much is obvious. They haven't got a huge budget. And so... I think it pushes Rob Grant and Doug Nolan to the absolute top of their game because they go, we cannot rely on gorgeous special effects and everything else. Not That's not to say, by the way, that the crew, brilliant set designers and everything, didn't do a wonderful job. It's just they didn't have very much money. So they go, right, we can't rely on that. The plots have to be watertight and the performances have to be amazing. And I think that's... Why I, why I really, really love series one and two and why I love Marooned and all bottle episodes mm. because I think it's it's what I love. It's like good acting and good writing. It's the stuff that I love. I think this is interesting. Rob Grant and Doug Naylor were notorious for writing episodes in an order, filming them in a different order, and they're encouraging transmission in a completely different order yeah. after that. First half of series three. Why are they in that order? Why does Backwards start that series? Why isn't it Marooned? It's a good question. I mean, ultimately, you're going to start with whatever you feel is like your showpiece episode. Backwards feels huge, right? It's got a million different sets. It's got a barroom brawl in it. So it feels like a big showy episode to go, hey, you, th- you thought you knew Red Dwarf? Check this out. Look how much money yeah. we've got. <laughs> look, right. how, look how much money we've got now. We crash a spaceship on Earth. Um, and so that makes sense, actually. Yeah, right. Put Backwards first in the new era to make everyone go... <gasps> what's happened to Red Dwarf? And then have Marooned directly after that to let you know, no, no, everything's okay. It's still about these two idiots. <laughs> and then Polymorph, what? Like, we, we, yeah. we've made that on this budget? On a yeah. British sitcom budget? 
Like that's it is astonishing. <laughs> like it's beautiful. It might be about that classic sci-fi versus comedy question as well, where you know, backwards has a really nice balance of crazy high concept sci-fi thing going on. Plus, it is very funny. Where it could be said that Marooned is maybe less sci-fi, more comedy. Maybe Polymorph goes the other direction. It's more like a James Cameron. I mean, it's horror, right? It's it's alien. It's yeah, horror. It is. It yeah. is. There's some nasty <laughs> stuff in it. I remember as a kid being quite upset, and let's be honest, as an adult as well. What was more attractive to you about Red Dwarf? Was it comedy or sci-fi? It's absolutely both. They're my two greatest loves. It's comedy, sci-fi and horror. So my God, like, it's right there. It's quite existential horror. When you say it horror, is. it's quite... There are monsters, but there's... There are monsters, but there are no aliens. This is a universe in which there are no aliens. How bleak. It is a fantastically bleak show, and I think I only really appreciate that as an adult. Lister is the last of his species. The cat might be the last of his species, as far as he knows. Like, the, the cat ships have gone off. He doesn't know until much later that there are other cats. So you've got these two potentially last of their species trapped. The one hologram who's dead and, and doesn't like the fact that he's dead and has never had a girlfriend. <laughs> and and uh, a toilet mechanic droid later. Not in the episode we're t- talking about today, though. Crichton's not in it yet. Well, he is, but not as a permanent fixture. He's around. He's, he's just around. Not on <laughs> it's so bleak, and the episode we're, we're talking about today is like one of the bleakest it's so sad like that Rimmer's never had a love affair so Lister's gonna patch an unsuccessful love into into Rimmer's mind how 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 upsetting is that I love the fact that they are confident enough to have moments where there isn't a joke and I think this is the thing Mm. about comedy writing that's really important like also having the courage to not put a cheap laugh in sometimes. There are some writers who say you put a tick on your script whenever there's a laugh and you should have three ticks per page. I'm not one of those. I think that's way too clinical. I also think that means like if you go by a page a minute, that means like a laugh what every 20 seconds some of them are not going to be very good if you're not building to anything bigger. So having these moments are having the confidence to hold off a little bit Trust that your audience likes these characters, cares about these characters, is interested in what's going on. That it's like, well, we can have a couple of minutes where we're building to something bigger down the line. And that's what I think Grant Naylor have in there in abundance, is the, especially in, in this episode, is the, the, the confidence to do that. The bit where Lister and Rimmer are having a heart to heart and they're drunk. Are we okay to go on to this episode, by the way? Please crack on. But when Rimmer says, I'd give it all up, my my pips, my long service medals, my shoe trees, <laughs> I'd give all of it up to love and to be loved. And then he sings, I'm a little lamb lost in the wood. Maybe I could always be good to someone to watch over me. And he said, that was going to be our song, but I never found anyone to share it with. So now it's just my song. It's the saddest, like there's no jokes mm. in that. <laughs> like it's just, it's just really sad. And then mm. there's the observation deck um, where it's you know, that beautiful plaintive bit of music sting that goes underneath it. Which they didn't use later on, which is sad, I think. I love that set and I love its purpose where it's a bit, the character's a bit more reflective. They did, they built it specifically for those scenes, yeah. right? They, <laughs> they, that is the pathos yes, dome. But it's beautiful. It is, it's wonderful. Yeah, Rimmer goes in there when he, uh, we're, sorry to inform you that your father is dad. <laughs> your father's dead, Rimmer! <laughs> they, they have these big, I think, comedic set pieces that could have gone so wrong and dry, but actually the performances, the pacing, Everything comes together. The laughs are long and sustained and and it's it's really well done. I don't know how they'd have the confidence to know that they can do that in the first place with these characters. We're only nine episodes in. They'd got a long career in writing by that point though, hadn't mm. they? On Radio 4 and so on. And But that said, and this is something I wanted to talk about actually, Rob Grant and Doug Naylor had written stuff on Radio 4, but it sort of, if you were to compare it to nowadays, they're pretty untried and tested to get a BBC Two sitcom. And obviously, it was it, it was because Ben Elton didn't want to do a second series of Happy Families, right? And and so they had a slot in the studios at Manchester for a, a studio sitcom. And so it was just Rob Grant and Doug Naylor's script happened to land at that right moment. So it's this serendipity that ever got Red Dwarf off the ground, which is amazing. Nice. But then they did; they were experienced writers, but still. Nowadays, you, 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 
it would be really hard for someone with only Radio 4 credits to get just jump straight to a, a BBC2 sitcom and they'd probably be told, oh, what we'll do is we'll start you with an unbroadcast pilot. Well, actually, we'll start you with a 10-minute taster tape and we'll just take you to an unbroadcast pilot and then maybe we'll go to a broadcast pilot if we can find a slot in the, in the schedules and then maybe we'll go to a series. And it's that there are just a lot more hoops, I think, to jump through yeah. these days. And also, is there any way if we did commission this, you could film it all exterior daytime? Because that would really help as well. Yeah, it, multi-cameras <laughs> are not in at the moment. So single camera, very, very cool, no audience. But also the fact that you've got essentially three unknowns. The idea of these days trying to get a show off the ground on BBC, a big BBC2 sitcom with three pretty unknown actors in their 20s like it would be so hard <laughs> you'd have to put a famous mm. person in there a head writer friend of mine said to me recently nowadays if you're not a sort of famous writer yourself like Russell T Davis Jed Mercurio if you're not a famous writer you haven't got a famous person to put in it and it's not a sort of famous franchise like Marvel or something like Sherlock Holmes Dracula something that's already known that you can hang it on Good luck. That's really depressing. It's really, it's it's sad. I think something like Sex Education, which has got a young cast, but they have to put a famous person at the centre of it. You've oh, got yeah. to get an established famous person at the centre of it. There's no way it could just launch with all unknowns. And I think that that's a shame. This is what I love about Red Dwarf. It's just it's three pretty relatively unknown performers and up and coming writers. They were just allowed to do it. And my goodness didn't it pay dividends wasn't it like this and robot wars the two most watched shows on bbc2 for like years and years i've never gone away from red dwarf i've always so i've had the dvds now i've got the blu-rays um so i've never gone away from red dwarf but i will say see season seven onwards i have seen once and mm. series one to six i have seen <laughs> copious times so <laughs> yeah. to me the delineation for me is i watch red dwarf when it's written by rob grant and doug naylor yeah. yeah and that includes the books the books and the the tv shows that are written by both of them by grant naylor a gestalt entity, a gestalt entity like legion yeah. <laughs> a gestalt entity that's brilliant <laughs> people love the books i mean i did as well we've had a lot of a lot of our guests it's been really pleasing to see how many people really took those books to heart. I love those books so much and I listened to Chris Barry read them to me on cassette night after night after night after night after night yep. and I reread them during lockdown. There's so many brilliant bits. The extended section of Rimmer's timetable for revising <laughs> his revision schedule is like <laughs> it, it's beautiful and it's so painful to read. I, I just think it's one of the best bits of comic writing. On Reddit there is a subreddit called Men Writing Women and it's for bad examples of men writing women, you know, like she breasted boobily down the stairs is the classic example. <laughs> There's often a section from Infinity Welcomes Careful Drivers, which is held up as a really good example of Ooh, men writing women. Yeah. And it's the first thing that Lister noticed about Kachansky was she had a face. And it's that section about <laughs> Lister sort of noticing and fancying Kachansky for the first time. It's often used as a really great example of men writing women. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's good to know. You might have talked about this, but like, I was enchanted by Red Dwarf from when I was 10 and it never bothered me that there are no female characters bar Holly really and you know Kachansky comes back later but it never bothered me I think it's it's okay to have sitcoms that are about men and are about men without women and that's that's fine as long as there's also programs with women and maybe an all-women sitcom sure. and things like that I think it's absolutely fine and this show is about that it's about men without mm. women as soon as you introduce a woman it utterly changes the dynamic and that's that's fine it's a very different show as soon as you introduce a woman into that dynamic I think it completely changes the show the whole point of it is that it's about I'm a man in my 20s and I want a woman and every single woman is dead like that's the whole point of the show <laughs> I have to say, season seven onwards, I have seen it all, but I I could not go on Mastermind, whereas I could mm, go on Mastermind yeah. for series one to six. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I guess a big test was when we said, hey, would you do Thanks for the Memory? Did Was there any part of you going, oh, gosh, I better bone up on that? Or were you like, yep, I know it off by heart? <laughs> I think... Because it's an episode that is like a little puzzle, I did want to rewatch it. It's the, because it is it's a detective story, isn't it? It's a who done it. I think Rob Grant even refers to it as we wanted to do a who done it when there's only them there. Who could it be? Mm, yeah. And that gives you the science fiction element of like, well, okay, well, how how can we do a who done it when they're all there? Okay, well then it needs to be something to do with memory, a memory patch, and me a memory yeah. wipe. 
I think that's why I thought, oh, it's because it's a little puzzle, I'll have to, <laughs> I will rewatch it. <laughs> Given there's only kind of 20 odd scenes in the episode, they, they, again, the structure and pacing is a little puzzle box. Yeah. They, they solve a mystery to reveal, uh, oh no, there's there's more to this mystery. That explains that bit, what's going on over here. In 29 minutes, they do a lot. Do you know what? We should talk about the episode specifically and John can introduce it, but there's just one little question. And it's a contentious question because obviously the cast of Red Dwarf is irreplaceable and inimitable. However, were we to recast Red Dwarf for a current day reboot, who'd you put in it? Okay, I'm going to give you a, a, a sassy reply. I, I was thinking about this recently, I put it on Twitter. I think there would be a really, a fun reboot to be had by casting all of the cast of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Holy okay, <laughs> so Glenn Howerton as Rimmer. Yes. Rob McElhenney, I think as the Nightman looks like Cat. So with his, <laughs> so yeah. with his eye makeup. Love it. Love it. Charlie Day uh, would be would be Lister, I think. Then you've got two versions of Holly. You've got Caitlin Olsen as girl Holly and Danny DeVito as boy Holly. And you've also, you've got a Crichton in David Hornsby who's rickety cricket. So mm. I think there's just, it's it's all there. <laughs> it's all there for the taking. I think it would be a wow. good American cast. Yeah. Even though it's an incredibly British show. And I think there's a reason that I think the US remakes didn't work. <laughs> sure. Because <laughs> I think it's so, so, so British. But if you're going to do an American remake and you have to recast it with current people, that's who I would choose. <laughs> <laughs> Gemma, that is brilliant. Wow. We, I, I was talking today about It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. I was trying to sell it to a British friend of mine who doesn't think he likes American sitcom generally. It's it's a rare American sitcom that actually has British style sitcom characters. Yeah. And so far as they are self-loathing, they are, yeah. <laughs> they do yeah. screw each other over the whole time. They say negative things, things you don't usually see in American sitcom. For people who go, oh, American sitcoms are too glossy or whatever, and everybody's just wisecracking and clever. It's Always Sunny is a great one. Taxi as well, another another Danny DeVito. Mm, that's true. Taxi's grimy and, and I think it's brilliant. So yeah, those are the two I always say to people, go and see the, the two Danny DeVito songs. Interesting. Danny DeVito bringing the squalor <laughs> yeah. to, to American so sitcom. Much. <laughs> that is amazing. So yeah, he would be a good... Imagine him being like a grimy Holly. <laughs> it's yeah. Great. He'd yeah. do it. I love the idea. Always Sunny as the cast of Red Dwarf. Right, I think Almost worth work. doing like a film spin-off or something. And I think Glenn Howerton, as a, sort of, he can do incredibly uptight very, very well. And I think he would do great as Rimmer. I think I genuinely think it would work. And if you go to my Twitter and search for Red Dwarf, I, I imagine you'll find lots of things that I've I've said over the years uh, about Red Dwarf. But you'll find that, and I, I I do photo comparisons. So so have a little look at that. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> I reckon you could persuade McElhenney to invest in Red Dwarf. That's it's it. Like yeah, the he loves it over of here. sitcoms, isn't it? It's been languishing in the third division for a generation. Yeah. <laughs> Bring it back to its glory days, Rob. The problem is we're not, we're not sure if money is the thing Red Dwarf needs to succeed. There could be an argument oh, against that. That's a good point. That's, that's Contentious true. Contentious stuff. Enough of my yapping. John, will you tell us about this glorious episode? Here we go. The boys have found a planet with a breathable atmosphere, so they're, uh, they're miming a stadium rock gig to commemorate the anniversary of Rimmer's death. What a show. Everyone is sozzled and Lister Drink drives Blue Midget home. The most important moment in the history of the show happens in the next scene. <laughs> Lister introduces the world to the triple fried egg butty with chilli sauce and chutney. I genuinely intend to try one this weekend. I want one now, to be honest. Rimmer has a revelation brought on by the sandwich. The sandwich is Lister. All Lister's ingredients are wrong. Sloppy, no sense of discipline. He smells, but people like him. Whereas Rimmer has all the right ingredients... Disciplined, organised, dedicated to his career, always has a pen. Result, total smeghead, despised by everyone. Drunken Rimmer insists on confiding that he made love only once in his life to Yvonne Magruder. It lasted 12 minutes, including the time it took to eat the pizza. In Rimmer's entire life, he spent more time being sick. Now, of course, it's too late, but he would trade in everything he achieved in life to be loved and to have been loved. They wake up the next day to find Lister and Cat both have broken feet. The jigsaw's been finished, and they've lost four days of their lives. They trace the black box recording to a moon, where they find it buried in a grave marked to the memory of the memory of Lisa Yates. The same name as a girl Lister used to go out with. What a weird coincidence. Watching the footage, despite recent past Holly's opening warning that some things are best left buried, they find out what happened to the last four days. 
Lister downloaded his eight-month relationship with Lisa Yates in the hologram simulation suite, implanted it in Rimmer's mind, tweaked it as if it all happened to Arnie himself. Rimmer was confused but deliriously happy at the memory until he found Lister's letters to Lisa and surmised they'd had an affair. Lister came clean. Rimmer, devastated. You've destroyed me, Lister. The woman I loved most in the whole world didn't love me. She loved you. So Lister agreed to wipe everyone's memory and bury the black box. Just before heading off to erase the memories, we see him finish the jigsaw as an afterthought. It's an oddly light ending to the uh, detective mystery episode, treating it like it was all just a big mystery and kind of leaving the really quite heartbreaking events hanging. Let's begin at the beginning with the rave up on the planet. Bit of trivia for the listener. I think you might know this already, Gemma, because you mentioned you'd watched the making I of I know what you're going to say. You're going to say that this was the night that Craig Charles' son was born. Yes. No, that is exactly <laughs> what I was going to say. Yes, <laughs> When they is. were recording this. <laughs> and he was driven all the way to North London and he missed the birth by 20 minutes. <laughs> That's absolutely right. Yes. And there is some footage of him. I don't know if you clocked. They cut away to a few, a few uh, moments where he is looking extremely kind of, can we just get on with this? Come on. Can we do the shot now, please? Real mix of emotions on his face there. But yes, one for the trivia nerds. <laughs> I can't believe I'm actually going to point this out. But in his absence, he was doubled by the production manager, Mike Agnew, uh, who had bigger feet than Craig Charles. So if you look very closely, you might notice that Lister isn't wearing his cast in every shot. And also, uh, Mike Agnew broke the wrong foot by mistake. <laughs> But yes, may also be worth mentioning this was a Welsh quarry, the planet, because it was the BBC and it was the 80s and it was sci-fi, so of course it had to be. What's so funny is at the beginning of that documentary, I think it's Rob Grant is saying, we didn't want it to be a quarry in Wales because we didn't want it to be like Doctor Who. Yes. And then later on in the same documentary, they're saying, so it was near Rill. It's like this little little Welsh village and we found this sort of refuse tip. And uh, it's like, so it is a quarry. It's actually even sort of slightly a step down from a quarry in Wales. It's like a, yep. it's like a rubbish tip in Wales. Um, and I think Danny John Jules is saying, oh, we got so ill. It was so stinky and disgusting. And so I blame all of my health problems on that night in that in that rubbish tip <laughs> where we were breathing in all the fumes. <laughs> well, yeah, they said when they found it on the location scouting, the ground was actually glowing, glowing, which was yes. extraordinary. It's a shame it wasn't doing that on the uh, by the time they came back to shoot. But yes, there we go. So some uh, some BBC. <laughs> cheap-ass sci-fi trivia for you there. Gemma, what do you reckon to the opening of this episode? I, I thought it was really nice to see them cutting loose a bit. Yeah, I also really like, this is pre-Lightbee, Rimmer. Yeah. So this is before we have the sort of the luxury of, ah, he can go anywhere. And then taking it away even more in Legion, like let's make him hard light so he can pick things up. He can do anything now. He's just like a person. He's like an immortal person. Um, I actually really like it when the hardships... <laughs> are evident so it's it's tough getting Rimmer out of yeah. Red Dwarf so there's a hologram simulation suite there's there's this sort of weird cage thing that he has to be in on the planet Holly can't just be on a screen on on Crichton's sort of disc on the front of him because we haven't got Crichton as a regular character yet so he's got to be on this uh, little monitor that's on wheels on Caterpillar track wheels so I kind of like it when it's a bit grimy and the difficulties yeah. of space travel are evident and you know that it isn't just plain sailing our ah, technology can a, a wave of a sonic screwdriver or whatever can get us past this I like it when there are difficulties and there are sort of technological problems so yeah I actually I like this opening scene with the Rimmer in this uh, this weird portable cage holographic thing. It's it's great. I think it's a, it's a good opening. Yeah, I love the visuals of that. Holly head bopping on the screen. Rimmer doing cage dancing. It's yeah, just... it's nice, isn't it? And the wall of like giant amps that listed yeah, miming lovely. guitar to as well. It's just it really feels like yes, we're finally out. It's a beautiful composite shot as well, isn't it? With the with yeah. them in the bottom right, and then um, Blue Midget and Red Dwarf really small in the background, yes. and like, it's, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous composite shot. I think a lot of these episodes that are up on the iPlayer now are the remastered ones, so maybe I'm uh, giving it too much credit. But it's, I, I think a lot of a lot of the the composition and the and the effects, frankly, we've said this on other episodes. The fact that okay, you can tell they're made to a to a cost but they're practical and that just feels so much better oh yeah than kind of mid-budget cgi i remember like laughing so much when uh rimmer is shot through the escape hatch at the beginning when they're doing the driving test in starbug at the beginning of backwards and they had like they it's like a little like a wire rimmer being <laughs> and yes. i'm thinking that was so much better than when i saw the first cgi version of that 
which <laughs> just looked awful. <laughs> sorry, sorry, I don't like saying I don't like saying negative things about a, a show I love. That's all right. It just didn't feel. Um, it didn't feel within the spirit of the show, <laughs> Do you know. Yeah. I I love the model so much. I love the model so much. They're so beautiful. Me and my granddad made a red dwarf, which I hung from my bedroom ceiling. Like we made, really, like, oh out of yeah. So uh, it was because he was good at that sort of thing. And so like we made a red dwarf uh, out of sort of card and things, and it was gorgeous. And it hung from my bedroom ceiling. Uh, and so like, I love I love the models so much. So I think it's a, such a shame to replace that with with um, visual effects. I think yeah, and CGI. Nah, nah, you got to have models. <laughs> <laughs> That's really cool. Was it was it based on kind of careful study of were you rewinding the VHS over and over again? Of course it was. <laughs> yes, yes, it was. And I've got the, oh, I haven't got it right here, the Red Dwarf Companion, my absolutely falling apart Red Dwarf um, Companion, which is like, it got, it's covered in sellotape because I poured over it so much. <laughs> so, yeah. Just brought up a childhood memory, which I've got a feeling is going to sound incredibly sad, but genuinely don't feel sad for me, listeners. But I, um, when I was about eight, nine years old, we couldn't afford, uh, we couldn't afford all the Transformers that uh, that we wanted me and my brother, so we just had a, like an army of, of toilet rolls that we'd that we'd uh, felt it penned faces on, and it was uh, yeah hours of fun. Oh, I think that's lovely. I, I'll show you something as we're talking about childhood memories. I'll show you. Something. Yeah, go this for it. The, this is the most nineties thing, uh, and uh, listeners, I'm going to show them a an LCD Sonic the Hedgehog <gasps> game oh, from the nineties. Oh that's not what? the that's not the fun bit. On the back is a sticker a games master sticker uh, that says this game belongs to and i've written Gemma louise arrowsmith and then in brackets afterwards rdf which stands for red dwarf fan oh <laughs> my god red, red dwarf, dwarf fan, fan not even red dwarf forever oh wow we should probably also mention to the listeners that you are currently wearing a mugs murphy t-shirt I am, yes, yes. I, I decided as as lister wears his uh don't shoot mugs murphy t-shirt in this episode <laughs> black and white version he's wearing uh, I thought I would wear mine, which is uh, much more colourful. I love this colour design. Uh, and I, I, yeah. I have no affiliation with any of the people who sell these, but you can get them. <laughs> uh, I looked How online. How crazy that that character has a, a name that we as fans I know. even know. Like, <laughs> it's what, 10, 15 seconds worth of, of specially commissioned <laughs> <laughs> animation. Yeah. It looks like a really it faithful is. reproduction as well, which it's they really presumably good, have done by watching the DVD over and over it's again. Really it's good. amazing. It's really good, yes. <laughs> So you can get awesome. it. <laughs> it's good to know. So obscure. It's the most obscure thing I own. I love it. <laughs> they do do some secret world building, don't they, these guys? Well, one of the things that I think is really nice about the, the grey sets is everything being in Esperanto, because this is a world in mm. which Esperanto was really pushed as a universal language. I was so happy to hear idea. you say Charmeter earlier Charmita. on. Well. Did you ever use that word... Ironically, albeit, uh, in in real life. Because I, I, I confess to you saying, oh, Charmita, especially if something <laughs> awful was happening. Like if, if a friend was being sick, I'd be like, oh, Charmita. And I got a little bit berated by, by John. Gemma, please back me up I, on I this. Haven't Charmita said, is a fun thing to say. It right? is. Oh, yeah. I haven't said Charmita, but I have said, oh, si, 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 amor, oui. When you're trying to, <laughs> if you're trying to get by in a language you don't know, yeah. I, I, I think that's because a Because that's all the languages, oh, right? Si, 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 amor, oui. <laughs> It's a fun thing to say. That's so good. That's so good. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. (laughs) 
well, let's talk about the, the, the most important bit then, the sandwich, yes or no? I've tried one. I've made one. Have um, you? Yeah, I'm oh, amazed, I'm I'm so amazed that you haven't, John. Well, I, genuinely. I would have done had I seen it since I learned how to cook eggs, but I haven't watched this episode in 30 <laughs> years. Right, that's the problem. Your, your egg cooking days and your red dwarf watching days have yet have only just overlapped. Exactly right, yeah. This is a bold new era yeah. for me. Is it as good as it looks? Well, when Rima says the ingredients are all wrong... Are they? I think they kind of go together I quite well. I don't believe that they are. I think mm. they're quite good. It's like fried egg, chilli chutney and bread. Yeah. It's all right. It's quite a nice combination. If anything, it's too right. Yeah. <laughs> It's just a lot of it. Yeah. Like there's a lot. Maybe when he's saying the ingredients are wrong, we can be thinking not about flavour or, or even provenance, but maybe he's talking about texture. You know, it is sloppy. I'm not going to lie. Yes, there's no, there's no, there's no middle slice to soak up the juice there, the yolk. There's, there's two slices of bread, three eggs worth of it's a lot. gunk in there. Mm. I shouldn't call it gunk. Mm. It is a lot. It is a sloppy experience. I'm not going to lie, but so you do have to be ready for that. But uh, <laughs> they're having it like when they're drunk, right? So I think it'd be quite, yes. quite, a, quite a brilliant experience. Uh, I did not have it when I was drunk. I had it when I was stone cold sober and watching this episode. So because I wanted a sensory. <laughs> an immersive experience so yeah it was oh it was nice you know it's a good sandwich when the when the sauce basically gets all the way to your elbow yes then that's true don't wear sleeves <laughs> when you're eating mm. a fried egg chili chutney sandwich yeah it strikes me as the kind of thing that would just be good to eat yeah i mean it's one of those things that if you see it you're going to be hungry right it doesn't really matter whether you've drunk sober hung over on your deathbed it's just gonna it's gonna hit the spot <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a good looking sandwich yeah and not that bad for you either no, it's no. pretty good. No, it could be worse. <laughs> Can I loop back to a, a thing John said earlier yeah. about the ending of this episode, how it's, it's just putting the, the jigsaw piece in, and then you're sort of left to imagine the fallout from that. So they yes. finished watching. We see the ending of the black box recording. We don't yes. cut back to them in the present time yeah. going, oh, well, thank, thanks a bunch. What are we going to do now? I think that's incredibly elegant writing. Mm. And this is something that Rob Grant and Doug Naylor do all the time. They are incredibly economical and e elegant writers. Yeah. You see it in, in series four when Crichton becomes a human. It ends not with Crichton going back to being a mechanoid. He's being led to the place where he will be turned mm. back into a mechanoid. You don't see yeah. the ending, really. Mm. I'll tell you what it does. It assumes the viewer's intelligence. We've now finished the plot. You understand what happens now. Holly, through the machine, turns him back into a mechanoid. You get it. And it's the same here, I think. It's, oh, it's so like right. they finish the jigsaw, so they now know what will happen, and they'll either do this or they'll do that. You get it. They'll either rebury it or they won't. Don't, you know, you get it. I love writers that assume your intelligence. Hard walking that fine line between having clarity in your writing so that you're not being so obfuscatory that everyone watching is going, what the hell's going on? Um, yeah. Yeah. And overfeeding the, the plot. So you're going, I get it. Get on with it. Yeah. Because you know your story so well and it's really hard to get out of that mindset and go, right, what, what, what does a viewer need? Yeah. But I think Grog Grant and Doug Naylor are such elegant writers when they work together it's just beautiful and I teach sketch comedy I run classes and courses in in how to write sketches and sketch comedy is all about economy of the writing starting as late as possible in the story and coming out as early as possible and I think that's what Rob Grant and Doug Naylor do here also I noticed there's no there's no transition into the bit where they've lost their memory it's it's just a like cut that. yeah that's right it's just they wake up and then oh something is wrong and then you Maybe it's just me being slow, but it seems to take a while before you actually key in to what the episode is going to be about in that scene. And I trust Rob Grant and Doug Naylor as writers so much. You're not worried that these things aren't going to make sense. You go, I'm along for the ride and I know all of this will resolve. So I do, I do like economy of storytelling. I remember watching this episode at the time. So I would have seen it as a repeat sometime in the early 90s. And I remember this storyline being, whatever, 13 years old, I guess. But uh, I remember watching it and just, just feeling like, and this is awful, but kind of jealous. I was like, oh, I wish someone would implant the memory of their happy relationship in my mind because yeah. I would love to know what it feels like. I'm not asking you to comment on, <laughs> on that or uh, so psychoanalyze me. But I do think one of the things that's really interesting about this episode, for me anyway, is by this point in the run, we've learned a lot of terrible things about Rimmer's childhood and a lot more has been implied. But his sort of general awfulness usually places him beyond proper sympathy, right? We're normally just more inclined to laugh at how terrible he is than sympathise with him. 
I doubt I'm alone here, but I feel incredibly sorry for Rimmer in this. And one of the things I think is really clever about how elegantly it's put together is that they can leave us on, albeit a fairly small laugh with the jigsaw piece, we don't have to go back and deal with the weight of him discovering it from the black box recording because we've already seen him discover it. We know how devastated he is. It's just going to be that again. I think it's beautifully written and beautifully performed. I think it's very telling that Rimmer is the prime user of the Pathos Dome. Yes, yes. Yeah. Lister's not the guy who that set was built for. It's Rimmer. Yes. The guy absolutely. we like to laugh at. Yeah. Lister has an amazing line in this. He says, you loved her in a way I never did. Yeah. And there's that, the bit where they're having the first conversation about Lisa Yates and Rimmer says, oh, and then I started treating her really badly. And he goes, no, you didn't. Oh, it's devastating. Rimmer's oh. the one who goes, mm. I treated her like right. Rimmer is more empathetic in that moment yeah. than Lister is, <gasps> which is the exact oh. opposite of what they normally are. Lister's obviously usually the more empathetic character. Yeah. And then, yeah, in the observation dome, Lister, Lister says a couple of things, really beautiful lines where he says, oh, so you had a relationship that like tore you apart, join it's just you, me and the rest of the human race, join the club, um, which I think is lovely. <laughs> yeah, the fact that he says, you, yeah, you loved her in a way that, that I never did. What an amazing... What an amazing yeah. line! Yeah. What an incredible. amazing line yeah. that even though that didn't happen, he has experienced it. So it sort of did happen, uh, and yeah. he was—he came out of it. Lister tells Rimmer that he came out of it in a more mature way than he himself Lister did. I think that's great writing. I just think yeah. it's beautiful character development. It is. It's amazing, and he can see how much Rimmer's changed by just remembering it. Yeah. yeah I mean, the, He's, he the feels he looks complete. Is just. That little bit more relaxed, the, you know, the way he's dressed. Mm. It's um, it's really, really beautifully played, and and like that's the scripting of it is so economical. They cover so much ground in that scene. Lister realizing that he made a massive mistake in wanting to go off yeah. and play the field and finishing the relationship. Yeah, what were you doing? You were mad. He says. Yeah. Um, Craig Charles and, and Chris Barry are incredible in this episode. Craig Charles yes. says that he'd gone, he'd become much more confident as a performer between series one and two. It shows. Again, this is testament to Rob Grant and Doug Naylor uh, that you can, it's real dramatic, obviously dramatic pathos in this. And then you've got Kat who can always deliver a really great line yeah. with the popcorn and yeah. saying you should have gone him a tie and all of these like, just so that there's always a punch. There's always, there's yeah, always yeah. something funny going on. Um, not so you necessarily have to have your three ticks on a page, but so that <laughs> it's like, you've always, you've always got like that bit of relief after you got a really sad bit and they puncture it. He's so good in it though. He's so good at that. When Rimmer says the word mm. once and Lister's response is simply smeg, smeg. it's smeg. so well delivered. Yeah. That smeg is, I think, the best delivered smeg in. in <laughs> <laughs> of all time, arguably. Yeah, I think this is, I just think this is everyone at the top of their game, really. <laughs> you know. And then you've got Chris Barry's impression. You told us earlier on that Chris Barry does the impressions of. Of all the cast for the for the um, audio books, yeah. <laughs> we see him do a visual physical impression of Lister. Yeah. Uh, in this, <laughs> it's, it's an extraordinary physical physicalization of the character. Uh, just really like again a little bit of Rick Mail in there in that in that <laughs> moment of performance. But what I love is that Lister is so unimaginative <laughs> that Lisa Yates. Calls him Rimmer. Not yeah, not Arnold. Arnold. Yeah. <laughs> I love you, Rimmer. Like, no one said that. There's some beautiful lines in this. That should have been the red flag for, for Rimmer, right? To go, hang on. <laughs> That's why I was, was an I orphan. Really in love with somebody? That's why I was an orphan, even though both my parents were alive. That's why I had my appendix out twice. Like, ah, these jokes are so good. <laughs> Especially given Rimmer's offered him a choice of, uh, a choice of um, familiar names and, and even Ace has come up for the first time in... Two episodes previously in Crichton. Call me Ace. Why didn't he go with that? Yeah. Well, because Dave Lister didn't really care, right? It, Lister has that arrogance of happy people, mm. right? Or people who like them. The arrogance of people who like themselves. He genuinely thought that giving Rimmer that, that memory was a true altruistic gift, right? Yeah. With no consequences. Right. Also, like, didn't even transport it to Io or wherever Rimmer it was like no and then I then I moved to Liverpool it didn't even change where this was happening <laughs> Presum yeah presumably if they were allowed to if, if he was able to reprogram Lisa Yates so she said Rimmer not Dave then he could have done a few other tweaks right just to just to cover them up a little bit he could have made it happen on on IO yeah I wanted to talk a bit about the relationship between Lister and Rimmer in this episode because it does feel like it 
it goes to some different places. I mean, I'm an absolute sucker for episodes of things where two characters who don't like one another sort of find a little bit of themselves that they kind of do like each other and or even they like the sparring off each other. I'm an absolute yeah. sucker for that. I mean, that's why Holly says he brings Rimmer back as a hologram, right? To keep Lister yeah. sane because they yeah. they were bunkmates. They interacted most, but also he sort of rubs him up the wrong way and so he'll keep him... He'll keep him sane that way. It's only just occurred to me. It's not just that. It's a it's a true existential interdependency between them, right? Mm. With like you can say like, oh, I'm nothing without you. But genuinely, if Rimmer wasn't around, Lister presumably would go insane. <laughs> yeah, what would he do? Just him and Cat rattling around the ship. Well, also, if Lister wasn't around, Rimmer certainly wouldn't exist, right? Mm. He'd be dead. And, well, and Rimmer wouldn't, wouldn't have even have been brought back had it not been for, right. for Lister. So. So they yeah. are truly dependent, yeah. and it's nice for them to kind of go some distance to realising that in this episode. It's- yeah, it is. Although at the same time, even even when Lister's done something beautiful for Rimmer, albeit in secret, and Rimmer is really happy, they can't go more than five minutes without realising what utter polar opposites they are to each other. When Lister realises that, oh, shit, I made a massive mistake in dumping Lisa Yates, because Rimmer reveals it by being a better man than him, <laughs> to some extent. And Rimmer's so happy and so so much more relaxed, and yet still it has to be, oh, you've never experienced a love like this, Lister. Still, He's it's, still an arsehole. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, for me, it is it's certainly the first time that I've really felt for Rimmer. I feel sorry for Rimmer all the time. <laughs> Yeah. I feel I feel constantly sorry for him, but yeah, this is one where it's right at the forefront for sure. Where's that empathy for Rimmer come from? Oh, because it it's like he he wants to be respected, but he's not good enough. Like he he all he all he wants in life is for like his dad to say he's proud of him and for a woman to say I love you. That's kind of normal. That's that's kind of like he goes about it in a terrible way. But you know, don't we all sometimes? I I see I see, I see a lot of myself. In all of the characters, because that's what great writing, that's what great um, sure. sitcom writing is, that you actually see a bit of yourself in in um, everybody, even in sort of yeah. characters like Crichton and Cat being preening oh, yeah. and um, and vain. Like you, you, they're all elements of yourself. And a lot of oh, writers yeah. say that it's just different elements of themselves they put into each of their yeah. um, characters, and you have to sort of you as a writer have to empathise with the character in order to to write them, or at least sort of see where they're coming from. So I can't. I constantly feel. So- sad for Rimmer and then yeah like in I think it takes off again in in series three with Marooned like you say you feel so sorry for him in that um but then and then in, you know in season four in time slides when he goes back and and talks to himself um and but Thicky Holden in the bed next to him gets the idea and then always gets ahead of him even though he's the one oh it's just great <laughs> what a great show <laughs> I'm just remembering how great a show it is as I talk it's a really good show <laughs> Someone should do a podcast. <laughs> Can I come back to something you just said, Jeremy? Because this is actually something I've meant to ask. Everyone we know got into the show as a kid. It wasn't a kid's no. show, though, right? No. So how does that happen? <laughs> For me, it was I had incredibly giving parents who allowed me to watch whatever I wanted all the time, right. constantly. Um, so they, I've said this on other podcasts, but my friend, my 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 friends had like. <laughs> bedtimes and I just didn't like I just I was I was I had a tv in my room I was allowed to watch whatever I wanted my parents were I remember once uh going up there was a a shop in Merry Hill I grew up in Birmingham and there's a a shop uh, a big sort of um, mall called Merry Hill and uh they used to have a a shop in there called volume one it was a bookshop but it had a really good comedy section I used to get I got a lot of my Red Dwarf VHSs there and I remember getting an 18 not Red Dwarf I got an 18 VHS uh, took it up and they went you're too young we, we can't let you buy me my mum just came up and bought it for me like it's so <laughs> I had very like they were very strict in some ways but uh, but they always sort of said as long as you're doing well at school it's it's sort of that's, fine that's the key thing yeah that was as long as you're doing well at school they took me to see Bottom when I was 10 <laughs> it was w- live and it was way too rude and they said they sat <laughs> we were on B- row B we saw it at the Wolverhampton Civic uh, and they thought ah it'll just be like the TV show live now I go obviously live they're going to be way ruder and there's going to be lots more swearing live and there was and they my mum and dad said they just slowly sank further and further down in their seats because they were so embarrassed um, uh, that yeah, they brought a ten-year-old. So you brought your ten-year-old to see this? Did <laughs> I you? loved I it, see. and I've said to them, "Thank you for doing that," because I got to see Rick Mail live on stage multiple times, yeah. and he was it in the first that first um, 
tour. They were hardly any distance away. We were on row B. I, I was like, it was, I was so close to Rick Mayle performing live. Like, he was amazing. So I always was thank the first tour that. the island where they've crash landed? No, Ireland. that's the third that one. Right? Hooligans Island. No, the first oh. one. Uh, the first one is... <laughs> God, this is so rude. Imagine this, 10-year-old. The first one is where Richie is trying to get Eddie out of the flat so that he can use his blow-up doll. <laughs> That's literally the entire story. It's brilliant. That's why I couldn't remember it, but it is awesome. Yes, okay. Great. Um, and yeah, yeah, I was just allowed to... So, the, sorry, the question was... Um, <laughs> What it's not a kids show. It's not a kids show. Why? Why do you think so many children? Watch? I, I was. I was. The answer is I was just allowed to watch it. I think. And I remember the first series that I watched go out live, as I say, was series five. And I remember being so excited that I physically went cold. My mum oh went, my "You're physically cold." And it was because I was so excited to watch an episode of Red Dwarf, a new episode of Red Dwarf, go out live. We have a question that we ask everybody. What's your favourite bit in this episode? I think it's in the observation la- dome, the the yeah the reflecti- reflecto dome, let's call it that. Mm. Um, when Lister says, um, "You loved her in a way that I never did," I think that's just like that's a brilliant bit of writing, which kind of could only exist in a science fiction, really. Like it, because <laughs> they've both experienced exactly the same thing, not a similar thing, exactly the same thing but Rimmer's experienced it maybe in a slightly more mature way. I, I just think it's beautiful. It's um, it's funny and sad and it's science fiction and it's comedy and it's, you know, Rob Grant and Doug Naylor's brilliant writing and I think Craig Charles delivers it beautifully. Yeah, uh, yeah mm. that's that's my moment, I yeah. think. Do you know what, that, you saying that has genuinely, there are people who, who will assume that Red Dwarf, not having seen it or more than five minutes of it, will assume it's it's like, let's get out there and twat it. It's the, it's the silliness, it's the Dwayne Dibley of it all. If you had to show someone a bit of Red Dwarf to make them go, look, this is an elegiac, yes. poignant, incredible, bleak masterwork. Maybe this is the episode to show them. It's certainly going to be this or Marooned. Maybe that's the moment, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, I was going to or say. Marooned, yeah. In terms of like emotional maturity of characters. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Well, Gemma Arrowsmith, it's been extraordinary. Thank you so much. Yeah, it really has. Thank You've, you for having thank me. Thank you. Utterly illuminated this episode. Amazing insights. Amazing. Yeah. Genuinely, genuinely illuminating is the word. Oh, thank, thank you. you Gemma. <laughs> Where's the best place for people to find you? Go to GemmaArrowsmith.com and you can go to all my social links from there and it will tell you what I'm up to as well. So, yeah, I'll be in, uh, will be or have been in Doctor Who, depending on when you're listening to this. Um, and, mm-hmm. yeah, m- more things coming up soon that I've written and I'm in. So, yeah. Just go to jemmaarrowsmith.com and it'll all be there. Fantastic. Gemma, thanks so much. Gemma Arrowsmith, what a guest. This is a real hot streak we're on, John. It seriously is. A lot of good stuff here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, everybody bringing the different perspectives. But we've got some themes emerging, I think. You're right. It did feel like Gemma helped us consolidate Mm. uh, a lot of the things that have come up a few times in the previous eight episodes. Yes, definitely. She's just got that analytical brain for Mm. for comedy. Yes, really nice to hear her take on the kind of the mechanics of how they've put the plots together around what they need to tell us and what they don't need to tell us. I thought that was really interesting. Genuinely hadn't occurred to me that we are kind of missing the last five minutes of the story. Yeah, and at the end of the day, it's a half-hour sitcom. You don't... What are you going to do with the emotional weight of Rimmer's dealing with what's been done to him? It's not going to be funny, is it? The best you can hope for is probably cut to credits, then pause the credits halfway through, and him going, it's a smegging psychiatric revelation! Yes, yes. <laughs> Instead of a garbage pod. But yeah, they've done that before, and it wouldn't work, so... It might feel a, a little bit on the nose, yeah. Actually, there's one moment in this that I thought... I think we've been finding that it's really timeless. I mean, I hope we have, because otherwise why are we doing a podcast about it now, 30 years later? But there was one moment quite near the beginning where I thought, oh, that's really interesting because I feel like that's not something you'd treat as a gag anymore, which is the um, the drunk driving. I feel like now you wouldn't get a scene like that just kind of thrown away for fun in a comedy. I feel like everyone would feel as if they have to make moral commentary. Not that I'm saying they're condoning it. They're not thinking about it in moral terms. They're just that's going, exactly it, think, oh, they're yeah, drunk, right. so we should probably chuck some gear grinding sound effects on it and have them wobbling about in space because it'll be funny. Yeah which it is, but I don't think 
that would be written now. Yeah, you'd expect there'd be a halfway house, I think, these days where someone, a modern writer, might lampshade it a little bit by going, "Are you sure you're okay to drive, Lister? Yeah, I'm fine." Right. And then exactly. Then crashing yeah. a little bit. They are. Yeah. They are helped in that morality by there being, you know, zero other humans. Well, you know, I thought that. <laughs> to crash into. But then again, that makes it worse, doesn't it? Because if they crash and burn, that's the end of the human race. Does anything about Lister's behaviour, his diet, the way he conducts himself, suggest to you that he is trying to maintain his own life? No, I think he's just seeking out pleasure to keep himself alive, isn't he? Just keep himself interested in being alive. He's in that phase of doing all the things that he loves doing all the time. Like when you move out of home and suddenly... You don't have to do the washing up. But eventually you realise that, that there are good reasons why you should do. Um, and I'm sure he'll get there. Yeah, you haven't seen the latest I series. Seen the latest series. <laughs> <laughs> if there's no one there to go, do you know what? If you do the washing up, then it's actually a, a nice place to be. And, and, and that affects your whole mood way more than five minutes of washing up. I tell you what, if the Dave series of Red Dwarf is not about Lister getting a, a responsible job and a mortgage, then I'm going to be bitterly disappointed. <laughs> Understandably so. I think I used the word smeg a couple of minutes ago, and that reminds me that I, I, I think I need to apologise. We have a very lovely email from Jakob. Hi crew, I was usually enjoying this podcast with an evening snack to let the work week fade out and give myself a double treat. Good idea. After Series 2 Episode 1's discussion about smeg, I'm no longer taking chances. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's my fault, and I I, I mentioned a, a thing about a type of camembert made out of mm. made out of that, and I, I figure I should have given it a trigger warning maybe before we we launched into that. In future, if we have any dietary suggestions that unappetizing, I will be I'll be sure to to give a trigger warning before before I launch into it. And I do apologise for sensitive listeners who are imagining harvesting a hundred grams of the stuff. I'm doing it again, particularly those who hated doing it two weeks ago and are now enjoying that process once again. Jakob does continue, though, so thank you for, for reminding me, Jakob, that I, need to, I needed to make that apology. But he also goes on to say he'd like to second John's casting choice. He says it's probably the first ever recasting I'd stand 100% behind. And we understand that, genuinely, Jakob, at this podcast. We know it's a contentious question. We know the original cast are indelibly imprinted on our minds and irreplaceable. That's not why we're asking that, this question. It's about our guest's response, not the idea of, of it existing. However... He fully stands behind the idea of Picardo, Robert Picardo playing Crichton. And the more I think about it, the more I agree with John and Jakob. Yeah, it's funny this, isn't it? The whole recasting thing. It reveals stuff about the characters and about the quality of the writing that you don't know are there until you hear a casting choice that you go, oh yeah, that's really interesting. Mm. It Like it clicks, for me anyway, the ones that really resonate for me, it unlocks something about the character that I hadn't realised before. And fundamentally that's about the quality of the writing. It is also though actually a testament to the, obviously the performances, but yeah, it's, it's absolutely not intended as something that we're trying to find better actors, because you couldn't. That is exactly the reason for it. The number of times you or I have gone, oh yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's, that'd be cool. Yeah. It's a nice revelation. Yeah, that's it. I didn't know who Robert Picardo was. I don't, hadn't watched the show that he's on that, that John was referencing. So I Googled him. I know him, it turns out, as the cowboy from Inner Space, which I definitely oh, yes. cannot imagine that version of Robert Picardo in Red Dwarf, well, other than as like a guest <laughs> villain where he'd probably be amazing. His rubber-facedness in, in Inner Space is, is what I was thinking of, in fact, more than Star Trek. Oh, I love that scene. I have read this email too. I'm not spying on you. It's just a shared inbox for the podcast. <laughs> and the other thing Jakob references is Esperanto. This is quite timely because we've obviously, we've now had a couple of different perspectives on Esperanto from Nat and from Gemma. And he says, I can only hope that at least five males on this topic arrived. Sorry to disappoint you, Jakob. They haven't. <laughs> but I really want to defend Esperanto and the idea of for-purpose-created languages at large. So he says, Suppose I learn Swedish. Where can I use such knowledge? Well, there is Sweden, and that's kind of it. There are Esperanto speakers all over the world. Furthermore, Esperanto speakers are the kind of people who bother to learn Esperanto. I can't imagine a better filter for people if you want to use one internationally. Yes, I'm learning Esperanto. And yes, I discovered the thing in Red Dwarf. That's cool, isn't it? That he's discovered it in Red Dwarf and he's learning it. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think I, I like that as a defence of learning Esperanto. I think if you want to connect globally with a community of people who are 
placing optimism for the future above everything that the world is currently suggesting about what the future might be like, then good on you. I think actually maybe we suffer from an arrogance. If you speak English, Spanish, Portuguese, Hindi or Cantonese, mm. any of those five languages, you can speak to another billion people yeah, on the yeah. planet. Yeah. Whereas Jakob, I think, is from is, is Czech. I, th- I think that's you might have a slightly different perspective on the popularity of language, the derivations of language, and how arrogant of a bunch of English-speaking people to to decry the idea of a, a purpose-built language. Yeah. Given how how purpose-built ours is, how how borrowed from so many different places ours is. Yeah. Jakob, you're a legend. Thank you for emailing us, and more importantly, thank you for being so optimistic about something that to us was a a, a, a Mickey-taking joke. It's nice to hear that it's still alive and well out there. Frankly, absolutely. Speaking of uh, looking to the future with optimism, who's on next week? It's uh, Mr. David Reed, I believe. David Reed talking about Stasis Leak. What a treat. It's going to be great. It is going to be great. We'll see you there, listeners. Bye for now. the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out at the French Open for a chance to win a Grand Slam title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. See the action unfold as legends fight for glory and new rivalries emerge. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th, with match replays on demand so you never miss a moment. From the first serve to the final point, Roland Garros promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.